Yes, yeah, so the first reading you've got in front of you should have, um, it comes from Numbers chapter uh, 21. They travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go round Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Then the, continuing our reading this morning comes from John's Gospel. And it comes from the passage where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. That's the word of the Lord. Morning. It's uh, good to see you. If you are welcome, well, if you're new amongst us, welcome. It's the first time, and you're responding to one of the leaflets we distributed on Friday morning. It's really, really good to see you. I was thinking this week about advertising. Billions of pounds are spent on advertising around the world because brand management and uh, the development of an icon or an image is so, so important. Here are a few. It's not a prancing pony on the front of a red, fast car. It's a prancing horse for the brand Ferrari. Uh, think about a piece of fruit that's got a carefully crafted, no teeth required, a carefully crafted uh, curve in the side of an apple belonging to Apple software and Apple technology. Think of, it's not called a tick these days, it's called a swoosh that belongs to Nike. Nike. Think about a poppy. Think about a poppy that was immortalised in the poem Flanders Field by Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, but two women in 1921, when the British Legion was set up, two women, uh, Monia Michael and Anya Gorin, persuaded the British Legion to buy, I think it was nine million poppies back in 1921 for their first campaign, and it raised about 30 million pounds. And ever since then, it's continued to develop into a larger and into a grander scheme for raising funds for remembering those who paid the ultimate sacrifice, as we remembered outside this morning. In this passage in Numbers 21, you've got another icon, another image that's used around the world, not so much in the UK, but when it comes to the field of medicine, the catechus is world famous. You see it on pharmacies signs. You see it in hospitals around the world. You see it in the field of medicine 
as the emblem and sign of healing. It looks very much like a cross, just with the top taken off it. There's a, a serpent that is bent around a pole. You see it in America on every uh, ambulance. You see it in every uh, field of medical discipline around the world. Not so much in the UK, but the catechist, this serpent around a pole, is uh, renowned throughout the world and throughout history as a sign of healing and health and well-being. And this is where it comes from. It's a strange passage. Please look down at your service sheet or open your Bible to Numbers 21. It's a strange period in the time of God's people, the Israelites. They've been moving through the wilderness and they've come to a position in their relationship with God where verse 4 and verse 5, they're complaining. They're fed up with God. They don't like how he's providing for them. They think, verse 4 and 5, really that uh, God is motivated by evil, not good. And so they start to question the way that God is providing for them. And uh, so God responds by sending a plague into their midst. A plague of venomous snakes. It's very strange. The people then cry out to God for mercy. They're beginning to die, so they pray. God hears their prayer. And then God says to Moses, this is what I'm going to do. I want you please to make a bronze snake, put it up on a pole. And anyone who simply looks at that bronze snake, well, they will live. That's what happens in this story. And if we didn't have anything else explaining what this story means, I think there are two conclusions that you would justifiably get to. Conclusion number one from verse four. It looks as if God is really vindictive. I mean, the people just complain, right? And uh, it's not exactly a proportionate response from God. The people complain, they have a little bit of a grumble, a little bit of a moan, and God says, okay, I'm going to send some venomous snakes and they're going to kill you. I mean, God is vindictive, he's capricious. That's an appropriate conclusion, number one. A second one, I think, is uh, that God is indecisive. It's as if God changes his mind. Something happens which we think is way out of whack with what happens, but God makes a decision and, and then God hears them pray and he changes his mind. I mean, he's vindictive and also he's indecisive. That uh, appears to be an appropriate response. This passage makes no sense at all, and perhaps it's just a nice image for the medical profession around the world throughout time and history to use. That would be completely understandable, but the issue is that this becomes very clear when we look at John's Gospel. What is unclear, Jesus makes very clear. In John 3, Jesus points back to this passage in Numbers 21, and he says this, as we had read, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. The reason why this symbol is uh, emblazoned in the medical profession around the world is because of this famous story and the famous verse that follows. For God so loved the world, we read in John's Gospel, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What Jesus is saying is this story in Numbers is absolutely critical to understanding what is happening in the world. And Jesus says this story in Numbers is absolutely critical in understanding my mission to save a lost world, to provide hope where there's none. 
two things I want us to look at. Number one, a disease. Number two, a remedy. Firstly, a disease. This uh, passage in Numbers 21 that's strange, that's obscure, but hopefully will make clear. Uh, it tells us about a disease. A disease. Look at verse 6. People get very unhappy, and rightly so perhaps, that Jesus sends his venomous snakes into a camp. It feels completely disproportionate out of whack. But it teaches us something very profound. It teaches us that this disease is incredibly serious. Incredibly serious. It's the first thing I want us to think about, the seriousness of the disease, verse 6. At the, uh, at the end of World War II, something amazing happened that uh, startled the most hardened warrior of World War II. At the end of World War II in 1994-95, uh, concentration camps were found. The death camps were found. And hardened soldiers, if you read the stories, were found in tears. It did profound psychological damage to many, many people. How could humanity do this to fellow human beings? What's particularly interesting is that the hundred years before the end of World War II, in sociology and psychology, people had a very, very positive view of humanity, of humankind. Up until that point, the thinkers of the world and the thinkers in the West in particular thought that humanity was inherently good. There was an overwhelmingly positive understanding of humanity. The real problems that we have in society, the problems of racism, the problems of uh, social stratification, the problems of poverty, the problems of anger and evil, that's not because humanity is inherently bad, it's due to social conditions, it's due to poor education, it's due to issues of welfare, it's due to poor modelling. There was a, inherently a spirit in the educational elite that we can do things differently, and if we do things differently we can eradicate poverty, we can eradicate evil, we can er eradicate falsehood. But in 1945, when the death camps were found, all of that ended. In 1945, when the death camps were found, all of that was seen for what it is. There is a deeper issue going on in the human heart that is beyond the solution that education could bring, that social planning could bring. The problem is far deeper, it's far more serious. In his book, uh, Escape from Evil, Ernest Becker, who's a thinker, he wrote this about himself. He said, I started out back in the 50s believing in sociology. We could deal with the problems of society because human beings were not that flawed. But by the time he died, he had changed in his thinking. He says, there is something wrong with us. There is something evil in us. The problems are not going to be dealt with just simply with social planning. And all of it started in 1945, says Becker, because of the death camps. Because you look at the potential there is in the human heart for evil to be done to a fellow human being. And when that happens, it gives you a question that you can't get around. What is there in the human heart for this to be possible? And there are two options. Number one, the first uh, proposition you can offer is the only way that people can kill other people in this manner is because there's something wrong with a certain group of people. If you read the letters from the end of World War II, from the people that found the death camps, they 
were incredibly moved, incredibly angry, and they said these lines. There's obviously something wrong with the Germans. There's obviously something wrong with the Japanese. We would never do something like this. That's the sentiment in the, in the letters that you can read from the people who found the death camps. But as soon as you start writing things like that, that's precisely the sort of thinking, the, the division in society that made people do things like the death camps. It becomes a, a self-defeating line of thought. It becomes a self-justifying manner of thinking that says we are better than other people. We are better than a different race. We are better than people with a different coloured skin or a different coloured eyes to us. Philosophers call it a, a self-defeater when you, you recognise something but actually it undermines your own position. That's option number one. There's certain people around the world who are different from us and worse than us. There are certain people with different coloured eyes or skin who are subhuman. That's the first option for explaining the atrocities such as the death camps. But the other possibility comes far closer to home. If it's not a problem with other people, what about if it's a problem with you and me? What about if it's a problem with us? If you uh, say something like that, you could say, uh, well, perhaps there's a problem with all of us. Perhaps there's something in each of our hearts that given the right condition, each one of us, we could be monsters. I could be a monster. There's evil in my heart. This is the other option. They're given the right conditions and the right pressures and the right conditions and the right orders. I could have done that too. Something on the surface, it looks very innocuous, but actually it reveals something far, far deeper. It's an issue of the heart. <coughs> Think of it like this. Um, you've got a headache. Our, our household for seven full days now has been full of sickness that you almost had a substitute in this morning who would have been excellent. But lemsip and prayer means that I can be here. We should be sponsored, perhaps. But listen to this. Sometimes you have a headache, right? And sometimes you have a headache for a variety of reasons. Perhaps you're a parent. That can be a source for a headache. Perhaps you're a grandparent. Yeah, you can have a headache too for that. Perhaps you've had a really stress-filled time at work. You have a headache. Perhaps you suffer with migraines. You could have a headache. But for all those understandable reasons, dehydration, you can have a headache. Sometimes you can have a headache, and it's not a trivial thing. It's a sign of something far, far deeper. You can have a headache, and actually it's a sign of a brain tumour. But you've still got a headache. And what God is showing us in this passage is people are not just grumbling. Verse 5 tells us people were complaining against God. But it's not just a murmur, not just a complaint, not just a bad day at the office or a bad day in the desert, shall we say. What God is showing us, this complaining is it's a headache, but it's not just a headache of dehydration. It's a headache that reveals something of the heart, and it's called sin. And sin to God is ultimately serious. That's what this passage illustrates. Verse 5, why did you bring us here in the desert this manna, this food you're giving us, we're fed up with it. We want something better, we want something more. This is not good enough. And you say, well, hang on, that's not that serious. They're just having a bad day. Perhaps it was really hot. It wasn't 35 degrees, perhaps it was 40 degrees. Perhaps the, the water butt kind of ran out. Perhaps all sorts of reasons. But to God, sin is serious. This complaining is actually a sign of something far deeper. They've got a brain tumour. <coughs> you could say. 
they're dissatisfied with his provision. It's a headache, but it's revealing something far more serious is going on than just a bad day and a mumble. God is not vindictive. God is not having an off day. He's not got out of the wrong side of the heavenly bed. But God wants to teach us something about the seriousness of sin and its character. If that's the, the seriousness of sin, that's the, uh, the seriousness of the disease, here's the character of it. What does it look like? If you're saying, okay, there's a big deal, okay, what does it look like? Well, God tells us. The nature of sin is that it makes you feel like nothing is good enough. Nothing is good enough. My job is not good enough. My marriage is not strong enough. My body is not robust enough. Sin makes you feel as if nothing is good enough. It's the, the hallmark of the character of sin. If you want that to be illustrated, you go right back to the beginning. Dave mentioned it. Go back to our first parents. Go back to the first book in the Bible. Go back to the first garden in the Bible, the Garden of Eden. And just imagine, if you don't mind me paraphrasing, a conversation that happened there years and years ago. It gets right to the root and the heart of the seriousness and the character of sin. God made the world and it was perfect and good and Adam and Eve, our first parents, were enjoying every second of it. But then a serpent came to them and said, how are you doing? How's your day? How are you two? And Adam and Eve may have said something like, this place is amazing. Have you seen the mountain ranges? Have you seen the rivers? We were walking with God the other day and we were talking. It's just a perfect place to live and be. There's no suffering. There's no tears. I don't even know what a tear is. There's nothing that we can be upset about. This place is perfection. We can do anything we want. Can you really do anything you want? Well, there's just this one tree, but we can enjoy every other tree that there is in the whole of creation. But there's one tree, and God who loves us, he said we're not to touch that one. But that's only one, but we can enjoy the rest. Yes, said the serpent, but do you know if you just taste the fruit from that one tree, it will be better than all those other trees. And anyway, how do you know that God loves you? I mean, God sounds like a real spoil sport to me. He's not a spoil sport, says Adam or Eve. We can enjoy all the other fruits from all the other trees. Yes, says the serpent, but I bet the fruit from that tree, the one and the only one that you cannot have, I bet it's better than all the others put together. And sin enters into the world, and Adam and Eve disobey. They don't trust God. They doubt his goodness. They don't take him at his word. They disobey, but disobedience is not the first point. Disobedience is the fruit, pardon the pun, of dissatisfaction, of doubting God's goodness, of doubting his provision, of being dissatisfied with the world that he has made. That's where disobedience begins. That's the heart of it. Look at verse 5. Sin distorts the world. Here are the Israelites and they say, we hate this manna. We had it better when we were in Egypt. Surely there should be someone whispering on stage left, hey guys, haven't you remembered that we were slaves in Egypt? Haven't you remembered that we were under the heel of that wicked Pharaoh? No, we'll forget all that. We'll forget that we were struggling to put two pennies to rub together. We'll forget that we didn't have our freedom. We'll forget that we didn't have enough food. We'll forget all of that. It was better there than it is now. That's what sin does. Sin makes you dissatisfied in a whole host of different ways. 
Sin always makes the now very dissatisfying. This is what sin does. Back there was better. The future will be even better. Over there, the grass will be greener. Out front, it will be better. Anything will be better than what I'm enjoying now. That's what sin does. The whole advertising world fuels itself on that thing in our hearts. The temptation you face, that I face every single day, is just the same. God is not good. His promises are not in our best interests. It's a refusal to believe God and his goodness and his love for us. We think it will be better over there. It will be better if we ruled our own lives. It will be better if we uh, didn't keep the faith that we have been following since we were little. And so truth becomes pliable and malleable, a bit like uh, blue tag. You can say, I am a person who believes in the truth. I will always tell the truth, as long as it meets my needs. I mean, there are certain things at work, and I can't tell the truth, because if I tell the truth at work, and if I'm ethical at work, then, then it won't go well for me. So truth is really important, but not at work. I know committing adultery is wrong. But actually, my relationship with my wife or my husband is not that great at the moment, and it will just be one night. No one will get hurt. No one will know. It's dissatisfaction in the promises of God. It's dissatisfaction in, 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 in trusting his character. And you just think it's better over there, it was better back when, it'll be better in the future, it will be better. Because God doesn't love me. And that's what the Israelites are doing here in the desert. That's why... That's why God says this is so seriousness, because they're not taking him at his word. They're not trusting in his promises. And so they say, we want to be in control of our lives. Not God. Sin is serious. It's the character of sin as well. But God also shows us the remedy. If there's a sickness in our hearts, God also shows us the remedy. Look at what he does. It's remarkable. God shows us the remedy in three ways. Number one, Believe it or not, Amy, clearly, God sends the snakes. Why? To lead his people to repentance. To lead his people to repentance. If you uh, could read Hebrew, the words here literally say in verse 6, he sent seraphim. He sent seraphim. He sent the flaming ones. Now, in other parts of the Bible, seraphim, that word is used for uh, angels of light, burning ones. But here... The word seraphim is used in a different way. In the ancient Near East, before planet Earth 1 or planet Earth 2, or before even, there was a time before Richard Attenborough, although he's 290 or however old he is, a remarkable man. In the ancient Near East, there was a snake which was called a seraphim. It was a flaming one. Because when this snake bit you, you would be bitten by it, its poison would enter, its venom would come into your uh, bloodstream, and literally you would burn up. You would burn up from the inside out. It sounds absolutely atrocious from what I've read this week. You would burn up from the inside out. You would die from this ravaging thirst because your temperature would go through the roof. That's how you would die. It would be a death by uh, internal combustion almost because you're overheating. This insatiable thirst that you had. And what God is saying is this. In this event, in the history of Israel, you are going to see something physically that actually reveals something that's happening to you spiritually. 
You're going to see something on the outside that reveals to you something profound about something on the inside. On the inside, you've got a spiritual fever. You are burning up from the inside out. You have a real disease. And this snake bite, that's just going to be a picture of this disease that's happening in your heart. So these snakes are actually going to be a mercy to you, my people, Israelites. They're going to reveal to you something that is deadly, and not just physically, but spiritually, and that means for eternity. These snakes are a sign of the remedy. They are to lead you to repentance. And that's what happens, verse 7. Look at what the Israelites say. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take these snakes away from us. The first step to being healed is not going to the doctor, is not ringing uh, 911 if you're in America, or 999 if you're in the UK. That's not the first step to repentance, or rather coming back to God. The first step in repentance is not crying out, take these snakes away from us. That's not even the first step. The first sign of someone genuinely coming to God is to say, take this sin away from me. You've got a new reference point. You've got a new relationship with God that's beginning. And it's not such a matter of take this physical issue away from me, take this social issue, take this financial issue. You say the biggest need I've got is spiritual. Father, God, take this sin away from me. The first sign of a relationship with God that the remedy is beginning to take place and action is that you cry out to God for mercy. Take this sin away from me. Take this impatience away from me. Take this rebelliousness or this anger, this hard-heartedness. Take it away from me because I want you. It's a sign of repentance. Here's the second sign and the remedy. It's also showing a provision from God. If the first sign that the snake shows you is the remedy from God, which is repentance, the second part of the remedy is the snake is a provision from God. Verse 8. God says to Moses, put a bronze snake up on a pole. Anyone who looks at it will live. Now just imagine this, this snake, you're in the camp now. You've got uh, sand between your toes, you've had very little sleep because there are snakes in the camp and you've heard about it and you hear a little slit. I don't want to freak anybody out, by the way, if you hate snakes, so I'll, I'll lay off the uh, description. But just imagine you're in the camp and this snake is slithering around. What are you going to do? The best thing you could hope for is that Moses gets on speed dial and hires the snake hunter. And the snake hunter comes around, finds the snake, and whacks the snake and kills it. But that's not enough. You want to see evidence. And so you would love for the snake hunter to grab the snake and to hold it up, to have a, a snake parade, to say, I've crushed its head. It's no longer a threat. And it's paraded around to say, uh, danger is over. You can come back out, kids, you can go out to playing again in the sand pits, a really big sand pit, it's the desert. But to just imagine what it's like, that you were in fear, you were carrying behind it, you didn't know what safety was. Night times were to be feared, day times were to be feared, because there were these poisonous snakes, but the snake hunter came in, destroyed the snake with a club, and then he paraded it on a pole to say, I've killed the snake, you're safe again. And what God is saying to the Israelites is this, verse 8. Here is my provision, my people. Here is the remedy for your sickness. Look at the snake. I am the one who heals you. Look at the snake. I am the one who can stop the snakes. I am the one that can heal you from the poison. Look at my provision. 
You are incredibly sick, not just physically, but internally and spiritually. Look at the provision I've made for you to make you well again. I'm the only one who's got the power. I'm the only one who can heal you. Look at my provision. I'm the one who puts the snake up on the pole. Look to my provision and live. God says to his people, the Israelites, look to me and my mercy and you'll be healed. And they did. It's so strange. You can imagine if they didn't. It's so kind of, yeah, but I want to save myself. I want to ring up the uh, snake hunter. No, 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 that's not how you get healed. That's not how you get the remedy. You need to follow my remedy. You need to look at this strange bronze snake on a pole. It is kind of strange, isn't it? That's what God said to his people, but Jesus goes far further. And Jesus says, well, this is what it was a symbol of. Jesus says, let me explain to you what it really means. John chapter 3, as... Just like the snake in the wilderness was lifted up, Jesus says of himself, I will be lifted up. Which means, I will die, Jesus says. Jesus says, I will be smitten, I will be crushed. Just like the snake hunter crushed the head in the desert, I'm going to be crushed too. I'm going to be lifted up, just like the snake was lifted up. That snake points to me. I'm going to die. And then Paul, the Apostle Paul, picks up this same sentiment in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And he says, God made him, Jesus, God made Jesus, him who knew no sin, to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul is not saying, God made Jesus sinful. Hear me carefully, it's as if he's saying, God made Jesus just like the serpent. He made him just like the serpent. He made him as a serpent. He made him to be treated as the serpent should be treated, as sin should be treated. What sin wants you to be is completely dissatisfied with God, to not give God a second thought, to not trust him, to not take him at his word. You should be your own boss, not trust God's loving rule and provision. That's what sin wants from you to do. But all of that attitude, all of that sin, all of those consequences fell on Jesus. And in Isaiah it says, with his stripes we are healed. Here are the Israelites, just look at the bronze serpent and you will live. You will be healed from your snake bite. And Isaiah picks up that theme and says, by Jesus' suffering we will be healed. It's a remarkable truth. Jesus carried all our sins all our diseases, and by his stripes we are healed. So it's the uh, sign of repentance. That's God's provision. It's uh, the provision of God, the snake, lifted up high. And then finally, his third part of the remedy is so strange, but so uncomfortable. You just look. That's what Moses said to the people. If you've been bitten, what do we have to do? You just look. If the snake was lifted up, so the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. And how do you get saved by the snake? Verse 8, you just look. Yeah, but Moses, come on. Can't we just do something like, how about if he walked up to it and rubbed it? No, you just look. How about if we went up to it and we bowed down three times before it? I mean, people in the surrounding nations, they do that sort of thing. No, 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 you just look. And what about if you go up to it and you pray a certain prayer? The sinner's prayer. 
Moses said, no, you just look. That's God's provision for you, to cure you of this deep sickness in your heart that you can do nothing to self-medicate for. You look at God's provision, which is a snake lifted up in the desert. There was once a man, years ago, called Charles Spurgeon. He's a very famous preacher, but before he was a preacher, he found himself in this really old Methodist hall, this tiny church building that uh, was his only place of solace. He was really struggling. He was trying to find who God was, and so he found himself in this Methodist hall. It was stormy weather that day. Snow meant that he couldn't go to the church that he wanted to, so he found himself in this little Methodist hall. And there was a guy there who wasn't planning to preach. The preacher couldn't even get to the church hall where Spurgeon was. One of, get this, only four people there. That's a proper church plant. There's one of only four people there on a Sunday morning. And so the deacon thought, well, we better open up the Bible and say something. And so he gets up. I'm sure he was nervous. I'm sure his uh, teeth were chattering. And What's he going to do? There are four people here, and I've never done this before. The quickest prayer ever that every preacher has said, Lord, help me. And so he opens up the Bible, and it's a book of Isaiah right in the middle of the Old Testament. And he spoke on this passage. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am a righteous God and a saviour, and there is no one else. That's what this deacon said. Now you can imagine in a congregation of four people, there's not exactly anywhere to hide. I mean, Spurgeon may have kind of gone around the uh, curtain somewhere, or he might have gone by the front door, but there's nowhere to hide. And he wanted to hear what God would say to him. And the deacon said... um, Uh, um, uh, he said a few things but he said this you don't need to work to God's love I'm sure he would have said look all you need to do is to admit your utter dependency on God and he would have said something like Isaiah 45 you need to look to God is there anybody here who needs to look to God he would have said something like that young man so says Spurgeon in his autobiography you look miserable said the deacon speaking to me and you will stay miserable until you obey my text said the deacon. And in that instance, Charles Haddon Spurgeon became a Christian. It's a remarkable testimony. He realised that he had been trying to run to God, that he'd been trying to jump to God, he'd been trying to do somersaults to God, he'd been trying to do all this stuff for God to uh, accept him. And he heard in that instance that all he needed to do was to look at Jesus, to believe in Jesus. The Israelites just had to look at a serpent up, cast in bronze, and every one of humankind just need to believe in Jesus. And all our sicknesses, all our sins, will be taken away from us. That does not mean healing in this world. It's a spiritual understanding of that word. This is how sin is remedied. This is how your sicknesses are dealt with. Friends, you can have been a Christian here for a long time. And uh, let me tell you this, there is still poison in our systems. That example with the glasses was absolutely wonderful. But there is still sin in our system. There is still a sickness that we struggle with. Our sins, if we're Christians, have been paid for completely in full. But we still battle with sin in our hearts. There's still an issue in our bloodstream. Where is the power to deal with the poison that we struggle with? The, uh, the bite that we struggle with? 
where is the power to change for me and for you? Before, you might, have, you might have just tried harder, you might have just used willpower. I'm going to make a resolution on January the 1st, I'm going to read a new book, I'm going to have a, a certain space in my house, and then I'll have a better and a stronger relationship with Jesus. All those are good endeavours, but, but where is the willpower for you to change and to battle with the struggles that we all face? Here's the power. You look in just the same place. You look at him lifted up, and you say, can I trust Jesus or not? If you're uh, struggling with temptation today, if you're, if you're tempted to turn back, if you're tempted to turn away, if you're tempted to, to not trust God's provision for you, what do you do? You look again. You look again at the source of life. You look again at the cross. What do you do if you're tempted to, to act here in an unethical way in a work context? You look again. What do you do if you're tempted to leave your husband or your wife? You look again. What do you do if there's a sin that uh, you just cannot shake off? You, you look again. And there is the power of God demonstrated by the ultimate sacrifice the world has ever known that every poppy points to. God is saying, Jesus Christ, he is your healer. He, he is the one that can cure you of all your diseases. He is the power not willpower, but the power of Jesus Christ. There's an old hymn that says these words. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. That's how a Christian continually looks back at the healer, at Jesus. Do you need to do that again? This morning? I do. Do you need to do that for the first time this morning? If that's you and you've not looked to Jesus and not trusted him, why not do that today? There's no better day than today to trust him for the first time. Let's pray together. Father, every time we take some bread and we take some wine and we celebrate the... Uh, death of the Lord Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. We do that in remembrance of him. There are a few better days than on Remembrance Sunday to become a Christian. But I pray, please, that if we are not yet Christians, you would help us, even this morning, to see your provision, to see your remedy for the sin that is in our hearts. I could be a monster. Each one of us is capable of evil, given the right time, given the right pressures and the right situation. Father, please help us to see the depths of our own depravity, but also the power of the cross. And I pray today that if we are not yet Christians, we would become Christians. Draw us to yourself today for the first time. If we've been Christians for, for years and years, if we can't even remember the time when we were not Christians, help us to look again at the cross of Christ. And help us not to look anywhere else. Left to ourselves, we would fail. But Father, in your strength, I pray please that you'd help us to change and you'd help us to change people through your power around us. So please, hear our prayers and help us to look afresh at Jesus Christ even this morning, I pray. Amen. Amen.